Welcome to the Shigon Podcast. My name is Jeff Fry. I'm your host. Today's guest, Glendon Rush, left-handed pitcher, played 12 years in the major leagues for the Royals, Mets, Brewers, Cubs, Padres, and Rockies. He was drafted out of Shorecrest High School in Seattle, Washington in the 17th round in 1993 and made his major league debut at the age of 22 years old, which is really young for a high school kid to make it that quickly to the big leagues. But I'm excited to have Glendon on. I played against him, faced him quite a few times, and uh, I can't wait to talk to him about all the things going on in the world of baseball. So welcome to the Shigon Podcast, Glendon. Jeff, thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure and look forward to talking some baseball and uh, eventually maybe we can figure out, I don't know, you may have already done the research, maybe we can figure out how all those matchups uh, between you and I came out. I'm not, it's, I'm, I'm starting to get old now, so I don't know if I remember them all. Oh, I've got them all, Glendon. I already did the research. Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, I was thinking about this today when I was, when I was looking at your career and you played 12 years in the big leagues and and I was wondering when I first faced you, and I looked through your minor league numbers, and I, my best recollection was that 1996 when you were pitching in Omaha, um, AAA for the Royals, and I was in AAA with the Texas Rangers. And I think that's the first time I faced you in the minor leagues. And then I faced you, I believe, in 1997 when you made your debut that year when I was with the Red Sox. Yeah, I I vividly remember um, facing you with Oklahoma City in '96 because that team, as as you'll remember even better than me, because you were playing with them. But man, you guys were loaded with veteran talent, uh, probably a lot different than we see in AAA now. Um, tons of guys on that on that roster that you guys had. Uh, that that had big league experience and had been up and down or you know whatever their individual cases were but I just remember being a 21 year old kid and my first time in AAA and seeing your guys' lineup and that was a challenge and and probably I you know helped me learn a lot especially going through that whole league that year as a 21 year old um, I learned a lot facing guys with a lot of experience yeah I mean 21 years old in AAA that's I mean that's really young and you should have seen the team we had in 1992, man. We had Steve Balboni, Jim Presley, Mike Berger, uh, Bobby Brower. We had like 12 guys on the team that had had big league time, and some of them significant big league time. And, man, we could hit, but we just didn't have the pitching. But that's how AAA used to be. It used to be you know, a lot of guys that were veteran guys, guys that major league organizations were comfortable calling those guys up to the big leagues in case of an injury. And it seems like a lot of that has changed now. They just seems they don't want to keep those guys around because they got to pay them too much now. Yeah, that, that and I think, you know, I, it, it's interesting as things have progressed over all these years, I think there's a lot less of those guys around too because of the mentoring and everything else that come from those types of players aren't necessarily what the organizations are looking for. Like they used to, you know, when, when we came up, you, you, you got to AAA and you were around a bunch of guys who had been in the big leagues and they kind of showed you the ropes and uh, you know, what being a pro was all about, what being a big leaguer was all about, how you treated people, how you treated the clubbies, the trainers, all that stuff. Um, that was part of your process of learning. And I think that, I think that that's changed a little bit and, and not to mention guys just skip through levels so quickly now that nobody even spends a year at one level anymore. Yeah. And I think, I think that's bad for the game, man, because I remember the same exact thing coming in there as the, you know, the youngster, the supposed prospect. And, you know, I got Steve Balboni who I watched on TV and Jim Presley and all these guys on my team. And, and I'm like Don Carmen. And I'm like, I mean, I listen to these guys and I try to keep my mouth shut and, and kind of earn my stripes. And, you know, I, I do remember vividly my first year in AAA, 89 days, I played the first 89 games of the season. And I remember that because I didn't get one day off. And the thing I remember most about that time was that uh, on every flight, Glendon, I had a middle seat and I was so freaking <laughs> pissed off. I was like, 
wait a minute, this dude's been on the DL for two weeks. He hadn't played a game in two weeks, but because he has more time than me, he gets an, an aisle or window seat, and I've played every game, <coughs> and I sit right in the middle on these flights. And you remember those flights in AAA? They weren't very good. Yeah, no, that was a rough. That's a rough travel schedule. Getting up, you know, at three, four in the morning, catching one flight. There's always a connecting flight, and then you end up somewhere the day of the game, hope, hoping you get to the hotel in time to take a an hour or two nap, and then and then play that night. That's a that's a tough league. I, I'm I'm always a huge um, supporter of of those guys when they can go out and play that schedule with that travel and everything that they do under not the greatest conditions. Some of the stadiums don't have the best lights. I mean, it's improved now, definitely from when we were doing it, but that's a challenge, man, to play, play at that level in AAA and, and you're on the cusp of being a big leaguer or you've already been one and you're back again. So it, it can be a, a real challenge. Well, I don't ever remember being that tired. I mean, I was exhausted, Glendon, on those travel days, especially at the end of my career when I was – my last year in AAA, I actually played uh, for Louisville for four months, and those four o'clock buses and those connecting flights, and you get to the city you're playing in at one or two, and if you took an hour nap, you felt like a zombie <laughs> when you went to the field, and if you didn't, you were tired. It's like, man, that's, people don't realize that. The people that are paying to go watch us play don't realize what that type of travel does to your body as compared to what it's like in the big leagues when you know we can't you can't top the travel we had in the big leagues yeah there's no there's no winning in triple a though i would have been curious to see what it would have been like uh, i guess a couple years ago when they had the when they kind of switched the schedule around during covid and everything i saw that some of the triple a franchises were playing like six and seven game series they were just staying in one city for you know, for, for a, basically a full week, uh, that would have been pretty nice. Cause then you get on a somewhat a, a normal routine and probably mirrors as close as you can to being big league travel schedule. Cause you're getting regular night sleep and, and everything prior to the games. Yeah. It's nothing. I mean, it's nothing like, uh, the big league travel, man. We were pretty spoiled with that stuff. We were acting like we are like fraternity kids acting like fools on some of those flights. I know that. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing better. I, I mean, I'm sure people ask you the same questions about about your career and about playing, and, and that's one that always comes up immediately is when people ask me, I'm always like the travel and, and the dinners and the spending time with the guys and going out and hanging out and doing everything we got to do because of the big league travel. You know, you're never never getting up early to get on a flight. You're always traveling after a game and you get into a city at a reasonable time, you can get good sleep and, and uh, you don't have to worry about going through airports. I mean, all, all the benefits we had are, are incredible at the big league level. Yeah, I feel sorry for those flight attendants that we had <laughs> and the messes that we used to make on those planes and, you know, taking seats apart and sitting on the armrest during takeoff and landing. And <laughs> those, poor, <laughs> those poor flight attendants, man, we put them through the ringer, but, yeah, it makes it makes you want to show the uh, when you get on a commercial flight now, it's almost like you want to show like a, a two minute video trailer of one of our big league flights when they're giving you all the rules of where everything has to be during takeoff. And you go, you know what, take a look at this. How, how'd this look for takeoff? And you got guys facing backwards, playing cards, guys doing cartwheels and sliding down the middle of the aisle on a on the uh, safety cards like it's a ski slope, all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, we acted like kids, man. I don't know that. I I uh I used to carry a little socket set in a little one of those little Oakley bags that your uh your glasses come in. I had my socket set. So as soon as we got on the flight, I immediately started taking a seat apart to set up our poker table uh, <laughs> in a competition with the guys who were on the other side of the aisle who were trying to take apart their seat and the flight attendants would lose it. They're like, "You're going to put that together, aren't you?" After we get there, we're like, oh, yeah. And then by the time we get there, we've had too many beers. And we're like, all right, thank you. We'll see you guys. <laughs> they were yeah. us. I know they were. Yeah, they didn't. No chance they're letting the general public on some of those planes after we finished with them. No, I think they were done for the day. <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about your um, childhood and about, uh, you know, the decision you made out of high school to – signed professionally when you got drafted in the 
17th round and you had a commitment to the University of Washington or UW, uh, was that a tough decision for you or was it just so much money you couldn't pass it up? Oh, good Lord. I wish it was so much money. I was, I was missing a few zeros on for it to be too much money. I, um, I was really focused on baseball being my career and it wasn't that I didn't want to go to school. I I was fine. I was excited for the opportunity to possibly go to UW, but I was so focused in on being a pro and a hundred percent to the, you know, to the fault of my own. I, I think I was way naive and didn't really understand what the road was ahead of me. I was just a kid with wide eyes that was going to get an opportunity to sign for, I signed for $25,000 in 17th round that year and went to, you know, went to rookie ball and started and, and I didn't know any better and nor do you until you're around quite a while and you, and you kind of see how it all works. But I think that all worked in my favor, to be honest with you. I think I just, I was, I was locked in on being the best pitcher I could be. And I was like, I want to play professionally. And that was it. And and there was no thought of what's my backup plan. What happens if I don't make it? What happens if I get hurt? I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff. I was thinking about, I'm going to go enjoy this and take this opportunity. And, and fortunately it, it, you know, I was one of the very, few and the small percentage where it works out yeah i mean i mean to sign out of high school and make it as quickly as you did to the big leagues you just don't see that very often and you know i I signed at 22 after four years of college and it took me four years to get there um but it took you i don't know if it was four or five years to get there for a high school kid it's usually a you know it takes a lot longer than that but i know i remember you glendon as a, a guy who was excuse me, a strike thrower, not overpowering stuff, but move the ball around, change speeds, pitched, you know, late into the games and gave your team a chance to win. And that was your job. And I was looking at your stats, you know, as a big leaguer, man, you threw a lot of innings and you gave your team a chance to win. And I know you weren't a flamethrower, but you were a guy that I always felt the thing about you was, you made me swing before I was ready to swing. So when I stepped in the box against you, as a hitter, a lot of times you want to work the count to your favor where you're in a good hitting count, 2-0, 3-1. But with you, it was you were on, you know, strike one. Didn't matter if it was a fastball, curveball, changeup. You were throwing strikes and making the hitters put the ball in play. That's just from what I remember. Is that is that how you felt you were? Yeah, that's a great analysis. I mean, I, I love that phrase that, you know, I made you swing before you wanted to swing. And and I talked all the kids I'm around now, I've got a freshman in high school and a freshman in college and they both pitch and I help out all the pitchers that are on their teams as much as I can. And, and I just constantly preach to them. Oh, one, Oh, two, one, two, get to, I I just tell them, get to those three counts and you guys are going to be successful. And, and you know, the other thing that I talk about a lot with them too is, is you don't have to make better pitches when you get ahead in the count. You can still make quality pitches, and the hitters are usually in trouble by then, and they're on the defense, and they've got more to worry about. You know, when I put you in an 0-2 count or a 1-2 count, you're on the defense, and and if you make quality pitches in those counts, you're going to get guys out too. You know, they all want to throw it 100 miles an hour and – throw the nastiest slider they've ever thrown in their life and they end up bouncing at 50 feet. And it's, it's a, it's a challenge to teach those guys that, Hey, you don't have to do anything more when you get into these, when you get into these counts in your favor, you just have to execute good pitches. Like you, like you're always doing. That's, that's so true. I mean, you could throw a pitch on two O that gets hammered and throw the same exact pitch on one, two, but because the hitter is in more of a defensive mode, he rolls over to shortstop or hits a ground ball to second. It's just so important for pitchers to get ahead of the count to get that batter on the defensive. And, I mean, I don't know that we see necessarily at the big league level anymore um, that guys are on the defensive. It seems like they're always on the offensive. Yeah. It seems to me like it would be a lot easier to pitch today in today's big leagues than it was when we played. 
Yeah, it's a different. It definitely is a different approach that you see at the plate. I mean, we we know from everything that we watch and what we hear, what we read, that that those guys are trying to do damage even when they're behind in the count, regardless of whether it costs them a strikeout or not. So yeah, things have changed. I, you know, the one thing that I always look at now and I, and I say, okay, if I were to go back in time and, and kind of jump back into the middle of my big league career and and the information that's out there now, I definitely think that I probably would have thrown more off speed now if I was pitching in 2023 than I would have you know, pitching 20 years ago, because I, even though, like you said, I was never a flamethrower. I didn't throw hard, but I was definitely not afraid to throw a fastball. And I threw my fastball a lot. And now that I look back on it, I go, man, I wonder if I, would would I have been better being a, you know, 50% off speed, 50% fastball guy. I think, I think there's times where I probably could have been a little bit better of a pitcher with that, with that mix. But you, you know, as well as I do back in those days and, and, you know, the way we were taught and the way we were brought up, especially on the pitching side, it was like, you need to establish your fastball. You need to use it, you know, how many, you know, 60 for 65% of the time, whatever. And that's changed a little bit and and probably for the better. That's probably why you see some of these pitchers that are even more successful with lower ERAs. That's a combo of, of the way they mix their pitches and the way the approach is on the other side. There's you know, there's not that many Jeff Fries in the lineup that are going to put the ball in play all the time like you did. There's guys going, I'm hopefully going to hit 30, and if I strike out 200 times, so be it. Yeah, I'll still get paid. And, you know, it's funny because with all the data and a- analytics stuff now, um, I asked a guy who's managed in the WBC, and uh, I was asking him after I saw – uh, Kike Hernandez takes strike three to end the game in, in Puerto with Puerto Rico, and I was like, "These guys guessing." I was like, "How do you take a three-two breaking ball with two outs in the ninth inning and the tying run on second base right down the middle?" It's like, yeah. how, "How do you take that pitch?" The only way you can take that is you're sitting on something, and you're guessing that this is the pitch, and it's the only thing you're going to swing at, which never would have happened when we played. That you would guess. With two strikes, you had to look fastball and adjust. And he said they are absolutely uh, using the data and analytics based on you know the percentage of breaking balls these pitchers throw in certain counts and fastballs. And these guys are just sitting on those pitches, and if they strike out, oh well, he didn't throw the pitch I was looking for. And that just I can't even imagine going up to the plate doing that. Yeah, no, that would be hard to do. That's that's uh, what's the phrase up. Uh, uh, paralysis by analysis. Yeah. I think is, right. Um, I mean, I only think of guys like a Manny Ramirez or, or during our day or guys like that who would intentionally go up to the plate and sit on a pitch throughout and at bat against you. But, but they were also the elite top, you know, hall of fame type hitters that were able to do that once in a while. Other than that, I mean, I know you guys were going to the plate looking, you know, probably cutting the plate in half against a guy like me, you know, looking for something out over the plate, waiting for me to make a mistake and, and going, you know, sitting on fastballs and adjusting to everything else. I mean, I think that's kind of the way most guys approach were, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I never would do that. I could never do what Manny did. I know some other guys, you know, that I've heard of that would swing and miss on purpose on a pitch to look bad and set up the pitcher so you'll throw it again thinking he can't touch it, and then he's sitting on it. I, was yeah. not, I wasn't that advanced, man. I was looking for a heater uh, down the middle of the plate, and when I got two strikes, I was looking for a heater middle away, trying to adjust to everything else. But I know you're right about Manny and those kind of guys. Those guys were the best of the best. They could do things you know, that I couldn't do. If I did that in a game and I came back to the dugout and Toby Hara or Kevin Kennedy says, what were you thinking there? Well, I was sitting on a slider. I wasn't going to swing at anything else until he threw a slider. They'd be like, all right, well, you're probably not in the lineup tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. He's going to be in there regardless of what he does. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Did you see the um, – I'm, I'm sure you read it too, but did you see the stat um, about Mike Trout that they were, they were breaking down that at bat he had in the WBC against Otani? And it was maybe like – 26 total times in his whole career he'd ever swung and missed at three strikes in the zone 
Oh yeah, I did see that. Yeah, I mean that's just crazy to think about with with the stuff he faces night in and night out, and you know he can get the bat to pretty much everything. Um, I, I guess the one spot you can try and beat him is you know up up at his hands in or whatever, but he he basically gets to everything. So to see that that just shows you how crazy Otani's stuff is. But I mean those pitches when you when you beat a guy in the zone and he's not really chasing, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the WBC. I was gonna wanted to get to that man. I uh, the Japanese team had some friggin' studs. That first guy I saw, uh, Roki Sasaki. Yeah, that dude's gonna be a beast in a few years. He hung yeah. one pitch. The only pitch that guy could have hit out of the, Urias could have hit out of the park, and he threw it. But he was. They were not taking any good swings off that guy. He is filthy. No, he's only what twenty one. Twenty one. Yeah. So he's still got, uh, I guess, what? Five years, I think they said. They, uh, no, they said, I think 2026 is when he'll be able, eligible to come over here. So he'll be 24 years old, I guess, by that point. You there? Clinton put himself on mute there for a second. There he oh, goes. Sorry, I muted myself for a second. I'm back. <laughs> We're only allowed to mute you, Glenn. You're not allowed to mute yourself. <laughs> I don't know how I did that. Um, yeah, th- th- that's going to be fun when we see him come over here. He's he's going to be uh, he's going to be a force. And I mean, the game the game is filled with talent. The more talent than we've ever seen. Uh, I, I think you know you're. I think your views are similar to mine. It would it would be fun to see that talent used in a way that there's some more in game action. I look. I think this year is going to be interesting to see. I, I know we're going to chat eventually about the rule changes and everything, but to me, it seems like just the shift alone is going to change how we see some action. Some you know some more first to thirds and and some guys running a little bit more. I I don't know. It, it'll be hard to. I, we we can't really gauge it until we actually see it when when the bell rings here in a week. Yeah, and uh, you know the uh, the bigger bases and the the pitch clock and the the limited pickoff throws all I guess designed and you know banning the shift are all designed I guess to create more offense. Um, I'm not sure really who has the advantage, the pitcher or the hitter. I think the pitch clock, in my mind, helps the pitcher over the hitter. Um, but I thought for sure they were going to tweak it a little bit because it seems like, do we really want to see all-star major league baseball players called out on, with three strikes when, when the pitcher doesn't throw a pitch? Is, do we really want to see that in the major leagues? I mean, no, like yeah, it, I, I was hoping they were going to make some sort of amendment to it to where, especially at, uh, deep in the game. So whether it, whether you start it in the eighth, you know, maybe make it like the eighth and ninth and the extra innings that you bump it up maybe five seconds or there's no clock at all. I don't if if you're gonna put the clock in place like they are, my guess would be the best way to do it would be to bump up the time a little bit, as opposed to, to go from strict pitch clock for six or seven innings and then all of a sudden there's no pitch clock, because then we'll probably come to a racing halt again and we'll have relievers coming in and taking four seconds to come set and toe tapping six times. And that's another one I've never figured out. I, I asked the kids all the time, um, the college kids and the high school kids I'm around. I said, what does that do when you guys, you're coming up, come and set during the stretch and you tap your toe four different times and it takes you all this time to come set. Like, what does that accomplish? And nobody's given me a good answer yet. So I'm still searching. Yeah. They're trying to, they're trying to uh, copy big leaguers and be like Kenley Jansen, and then uh, who's the guy for uh, the Astros? The Rock, the Baby, wind up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know. It's a bunch of wasted energy to me. Um, and it and that some of that stuff was what, what was really slowing, you know, some of those innings down. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what they do. But you don't want to take away the excitement and the you know, the, the pressure and the tension that goes on in those late innings when it's big hitters coming to the plate and the, the best relievers on the other team in the game, that's some of the best 
things about baseball there is and and you know true baseball fans love watching that and I would hate to see it be sped up because we're hoping we get games in 240 instead of 248 you know I think I think we've already proven just in spring training and what they did in the minor leagues in the uh, last year that clearly the pitch clock is going to improve the pace of game um, but I don't know who you're appealing to are you appealing to people that don't care about watching baseball anyways. Cause if that's the case, then it doesn't really matter. But I personally like the, you know, the pace of game to be faster. Cause that's how I was. I, you and I joked when we were texting back and forth, I was like, I never would have got the five seconds on that pitch clock because I was got the ball back and I was ready to go. And that was part of my game, but not all the guys are like that. Yeah. yeah you were one of those guys that I would have loved to play defense behind but I didn't necessarily look forward to facing you because, like I said earlier, you made me swing before I was I was ready. And you made me, you know, feel like I was like, man, I got to freaking get locked in now and I can't just take ball one, ball two and relax and, you know, wait for him to come to me. And those kind of guys were are always, for me, the best guys to play defensive behind, play defense behind, but not always the funnest guys to face. Like, uh, you know, Jamie Moore, he was a quick guy. He didn't have great stuff, but man, he was, he was throwing strikes and he was, you know, you had to be ready to go. You had to be ready to go. Uh, Montgomery, did you play with Montgomery, the the closer in Kansas city? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Monty was real quick worker. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he was like, man, he was coming at you, you know, and, and it was like, all right, well, I can't, you know, I'm not a guy who's going to go up, who generally goes up there swinging early in the count. My yeah. job is to get on base. So, yeah. I, but and so now here I have a guy who's going to throw strike one. I know he is. So what am I going to do? Be down oh one, or am I going to swing and better not pop up this first pitch, or my manager's going to be pissed off at me because my job's to get on base. So it's like uh, I don't really know what to do here. It's kind of throwing me out of my game plan. And I might want to sit back and think about it for a second, but I got to be in that box with eight seconds looking at the pitcher. Or that's going to be a strike. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, I would think it's got to be a little bit of an advantage for the pitchers, but I, I I'm not in the box either. Um, I didn't. I won't see it on that end, but but I think that overall, it hasn't really bothered me that much. Other than I don't necessarily like looking at it on the TV. I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm. I, I hope when they get the regular season broadcasts going, they kind of just shy away from the pitch clock being a part of, you know, the score that's shown on the screen or whatever. Cause it, I think, I think it's honestly, it's a little bit distracting. That might just be my ADD, but it bothers me a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. I, I've not watched a spring training game uh, this year. I just see a few highlights. I watched, you know, most of the WBC cause it was just edge of your seat action. And I was pulling for team Mexico to make it to the finals cause of my buddy, Benji Gill, um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the clock. I know I probably – it would be distracting for me to see the pitcher, and I'm, like, trying to time it. It's like, all right, wait a minute, where's the hitter at? Okay, where's the pitcher at? And I, I think yeah. the, the goofy thing for me is the, the whole eight-second thing is, okay, so as a hitter, I've got to be in the box, both feet in the box, and I guess ready to hit what I have to be in my load load position or whatever when the pitcher <laughs> – is on the mat, but then I see the pitcher who's not even on the rubber yet. So why yeah. do I have to be in the box with eight seconds if the pitcher's fooling around with his glove? I, to me, that's like I, I just don't understand that part. I never stepped in the box, not ready to hit, not looking at the pitcher. I was ready to go at eight seconds. Every, I mean, every time I stepped in the box, both feet, I was looking at the pitcher. I wasn't looking around. I was ready to go. So I don't understand that part as far as that hitter has to be engaged with the pitcher with eight seconds. That's kind yeah, of cool. I think I think we're I think you and I are actually both bad case studies. We need to go. We have to look at uh, some of our old uh, teammates, right? That were slower and took a while to get in the box, adjusted their batting gloves six times, and you know, guys on the mound that were fiddling around the river and walking around the dirt and doing everything else that took forever. Right. Well, so so you faced Nomar, didn't you? Yes, yeah, and I was teammates with him too, so I saw that on both sides, yeah. Right, so, well, that's that's perfect then because I know no more. A lot of people, you know, I've seen videos on social media and stuff about, well, we don't have to watch this crap anymore, and I was like, man, 
I play with no more. Um, and I can promise you it never bothered me because I knew once he got those batting gloves in the right spot, he was fixing to hit a rocket somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was, he was special. And, uh, I, I think, yeah, I don't know. I, well, you know how social media works and, and everyone has a complaint about everything. It's just one big complaint jar sent from our phones. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I try and, I try my best to stay out of there. I, it's so funny. I joke around with my son all the time because I'll tell him these snarky comments that I, that I say about certain posts or things like that. And I said, but I didn't write it though, because I didn't want to get worn out or get yelled at for the next 48 hours on my Twitter account. So I just keep it to myself. But that, I mean, that seems like that's what everybody does now. And everyone has a complaint. Everyone has an input. Uh, everyone's a coach. Everyone's a manager. Everyone's a GM. So uh, it, it, I guess you just have to take it for what it's worth and enjoy it for the the comedy that it is. I know you do. I know I do. So it, uh, I think if you handle it that way, we do a lot better. Yeah, and there for a while, man. When I first started doing it three years ago, and really getting after the gurus, uh, man, I got a lot of hate, and it kind of bothered me. You know what people were saying, and now three years later, I could give a crap what these dudes say because almost every one of them that 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 talks smack to me never played past high school and i'm like man why seriously dude why should i be worried about what you think about you know what's going on in major league baseball when i mean you you didn't make your jv team and that's that's yeah that's the thing i think about it like you know back when we were when we were playing the only thing you cared about was the other 24 guys that were your teammates and your, your manager, your coaching staff, your front office, you know, your trainers, your club, is you cared about what those guys thought about you, what kind of person you were, what kind of player you were, everything else. And you, and you wanted to be respected by the guys on the other side of the field for what kind of guy you were and what kind of player you were. And that's all you cared about. And the minute, um, Twitter and everything else was invented. Then all of a sudden, all these other people that used to be in the stands are now piled onto the field and think they're in the clubhouse with us. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess everybody has, you know, everybody is entitled to their um, opinion now. And it's funny. So I posted a deal a couple of days ago. Charles Barkley. I don't know if you saw what I posted about Barkley. It's like it seems professional sports is the only the only uh, occupation where. People could call into these talk shows and on social media and, and talk to about a coach, how he should be fired or whatever. He's like, man, you're a plumber. You know, <laughs> why should I care? Why should we care what you think about? You know, this dude's been coaching for 30 years, and now all of a sudden you've determined he should be fired because you didn't like what he did in that game. It's like, man, you're a plumber. You, you didn't even touch a ball. Yeah, it is It is amazing. And I'm sure, you, you know, you played with some – really incredible players and i'm sure you're the same way i am when you read some of the stuff about guys you played with or people on twitter trying to tell you about you know greg maddox who was my teammate for you know parts of four years in chicago and san diego or you know somebody telling you about mo vaughn or nomar garcia para and you're just going like this guy has no idea what he's talking about i was in the clubhouse with him every day and and, but people can put out any story they want or talk about these guys like they know what they're talking about or like they know them, and it's pretty funny. Yeah, they can hide behind their keyboard and, and make all these comments. And cause I, So you played with Nomar, and you know I've had Nomar on the podcast, and I was amazed. I mean, I was like in awe of this dude when he came up. I was like, man, i never seen nobody could do this stuff. He looked like he was on every pitch, and, and I was like, this dude is, is different. And yeah. And he, but he, he was, man, there, there was, there was something about him that just, that's the best description. I don't, I don't think I'd give a better one. What you just said, it looked like he was on every pitch when you, when he was hitting and just rockets all over the ballpark and just a heck of a player played, played his butt off, you know, hundred percent every play. He was, he was fun. I mean, we, unfortunately we didn't, uh, perform the way we should have that year when we traded for him with the Cubs in 04 we fell a little bit short we knocked ourselves out of the playoff run right at the very end of the, like the last week of the season but man it would have been fun to fun to be a part of that that's one of my biggest regrets probably as a 
as a player that, that I didn't get to make the playoffs that year with the Cubs. Yeah, and, and the thing about Nomar was Nomar was also a great teammate and just like the most humble guy. Uh, he would occasionally say, man, he'd come back to the dugout and go, man, I hit that I hit that ball hard, didn't I? I was like, yeah, you did, dude. You did. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, yes, you did. You go do it again next time. And, you know, yeah. you know his yeah. crazy little superstitions and things like that, how he set his glove on the steps and his he brought his jacket out to the bench every game, even when it was 105 degrees in Texas. He said, I was like, you're not going to need that jacket no more. But he always brought it out because he was superstitious. And, yeah. you know, did you have many superstitions that, that – uh, that you did I, today? I did. I think I just had kind of the normal, the normal stuff, you know, like game day on start day stuff, whether it was, you know, the way I drove to the ballpark or the way I ate or whatever. And, and, and then now it's become, now it's a really funny comment that I use to all the, all the players that I help coach, which is, Hey guys, none of those superstitions work because <laughs> I basically say if they, they did. I would have won twenty games one year or something, you know. But uh, but it's it's funny when you're in the mid- when you're in the middle of it as a player, you don't really think about it, right? No, and I had a few. I mean, nothing crazy. Like I've heard about Wade Boggs ate the same thing every day, and and no more and some other guys. I had a few things that I did. I had like the same routine I would do uh, in the on deck circle or when I ran out to the field or how I put my socks on and things like that. Um, you know, but it wasn't where if I didn't do it one time, I felt like I was going to strike out because I didn't get to swing my bat around four times each way like I normally do. But still, those little superstitions, you know, it's kind of like a comfort thing where it helps you feel like you're locked in and you're ready to go, um, you know, when it's when you step in the box or for you when you step on the mound. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it because I I, I wish that I could have erased some of that out of my head sometimes you know I get so locked into last start was a good one so I got to do everything the exact same again and you know what you realize as you as you get older and you've been around it a long time it's it's really just about doing what you can in between each outing or for you as a position player between each game and each at bat is to feel make your body feel the best it possibly can and and be mentally prepared to go out there for that night. And that, and, you know, and, and that's part of what we learn as a, you know, the longer you play and, and the more, you know, and the more guys you're around that have done it a long time. And unfortunately I didn't learn a lot of that until I got a little bit further into my career. So I, I had to go out and take my bumps and bruises and, you know, as a youngster in Kansas city and, and, but that was all good for me. It was all learning and, and helped me get to where I, I performed better and was more consistent as I got a little bit older. So who were, who were some of the stars of uh, Kansas City role, the Kansas City roles when you first got called up? Brett was well, one, one year old. I'm I'm pretty sure. I, I assume you played with Dean Palmer and oh, yeah. and um, and Goody too, right? Tom Goodwin. I never played with Goody. Played against. Okay, him. I didn't know Goody. if you missed Goody or not. Yeah. So so yeah, those guys and and we had just made that. Uh, big trade back back in the day when I so when I came up it was our infield was Jeff King, Jose Offerman, Jay Bell, Dean Palmer, um, and in the outfield it was Bip Roberts, Johnny Damon, and Jermaine Dye. We eventually traded for um, so we had a pretty good team, but it was kind of that stereotypical middle of the pack you know, American league central, Hey, hopefully we finish 500 type team and, you know, a mix of veterans, but man, I had some great, uh, you mentioned Monty earlier, Jeff Montgomery, but between Monty and Tim Belcher and Kevin Apier, uh, some of the veteran guys, Mike McFarland behind the plate. And then, and then I of course came up with Sal Fasano and Mike Sweeney. Mike eventually went out from behind the plate and went to first base, but those guys were all just huge influences on me and helped me navigate being a 22 and 23 year old in the big leagues. Man, I remember those teams. I remember, I mean, that's back when Jose Offerman could really run and Goody and you guys had the, was the, it wasn't turf then, was it? Was it grass? 
your field it was grass yeah it was uh that we were a little ways out from the turf and and it was grass and you know man was there ever a better playing surface than kansas city when uh you know back in the day george toma the the groundskeeper there was that place looked like augusta and and uh you know that's why he 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 did all the super bowls and everything i mean he was the grass guru of the united states oh yeah and he uh i remember that my favorite place to go take batting practice on a beautiful 85 degree day was Kansas City cuz the field was immaculate they had that great friggin sound system um and it was just like man this is fun 50 minutes out here taking bp with all my buddies my teammates beautiful weather the music's awesome the field is incredible i look over there in the other dugout when i first came up it was george brett and Hal McRae and Willie Wilson um, and these guys, but I remember those teams you had, you know, and they were kind of built a little bit like those, those, you know, the Kansas City Royals teams of the late '80s, early '90s. Speed, speed, defense, and good pitching. And uh, yeah, I remember those. I love, I loved going to Kansas City for our three or four days we were there. Yeah, what a state! Beautiful stadium. I, you know, I never went back from from when I got traded. From Kansas City to the Mets in '99, at the end of the season, I never went back for interleague play. My my schedules just never matched up anywhere I was. And my first trip back there was in, uh, I guess, in '15. For the I went back and saw a World Series game there, and I was blown away at how beautiful, you know, all the upgrades and everything they had done to that stadium. And I mean, that place is just incredible. What a great baseball town and it's a shame that that those cities get into that, you know, just mid-market woes, I guess you could call it, of, you know, not going out and spending money on free agents and everything because, they, they I mean, look, look in the exact same parking lot. You got the Kansas City Chiefs and look what they've done. Yeah, I hear that. Are they going to – are they looking to uh, build a stadium, the baseball stadium somewhere else I'm hearing in Kansas City? They are. I think they're they're looking. I don't know if they were going to go more towards downtown um, or or where they were talking about doing it. But yeah, that's it's in the works. I don't know where they're at with it, but that'll be pretty awesome. Yeah, that will be. Uh, I remember uh, the first time we went to Kansas City. This is a long time ago. This is over thirty years ago. I think it was nineteen ninety two and. David Hulse, I don't know if you remember playing against Hulsey. He's one of my good buddies, but he's a little left-handed hitting center fielder who could fly, and he was a – George Brett was his hero. I mean, his friggin' hero. And he had, like, every baseball card ever made of George Brett. And we go to Kansas City, and uh, I think the clubhouse guy, Danny Wheat, brought him over to the other side to meet George Brett. And, man, he was excited, and he – let his stuff sign and we go into the game. Brett's first A B hits the ball to right center and Holsey lays out and robs him. And then uh he was Brett was pissed and Holsey was like on top of the world. And next time up, Brett hits a base hit, ends up getting to second base, and he looks out at center field and I'm standing there. He goes, You tell that Holse that I was gonna send a girl to his hotel room tonight. And I'm like Oh, you can't do that, George. You can't do that. His wife's in town. He goes, Oh, I'm definitely sending the girl to his room. <laughs> oh, see, he was oh, he was so excited. Joe, I mean, to have an iconic guy like George Brett that we all grew up watching, just be a normal guy, you know? Yeah. That oh, that, that's awesome. Yeah, I remember um my first big league spring training with them in ninety seven. We had one of those early rainy days, you know, in Florida where you where you end up the guys end up throwing their pens in the in the cages and guys were hopping in and taking live at bats or tracking pitches and everything. And George was with us in camp and he stood in um, during my pen and and was standing down there. And I was just like my jaw was on the floor and I was, you know, praying to God that I didn't let one loose arm side and hit him. Cause he's standing in their left hand. I'm like, Oh my God, George Brett's in the box right now against me. It was, it was pretty awesome. He's so great. What a great guy. And so much fun to hear all his stories and, and everything he he's been through. Yeah, no doubt. And another guy you mentioned a minute ago, um, 
that I remember facing, I think it was 1992, was Kevin Apier. And um, at that time, he was one of the best pitchers in the game, an ace. And I remember facing him in a day game in, in Kansas City, and I was hitting second. Otis Nixon was hitting first. And he goes, just get you one today. I was like, that's it? That's the goal? One to hit off this guy? He goes, yep, get you one. You get it, you might have a chance to get more, but you see this mask, just try and get you one. And I get in the box, and he's like breathing heavy and he's moving all this stuff, and he's like arms and legs going everywhere. And then next thing you know, he throws this fourth ball that drops about two feet. I'm like, how am I going to even get one hit off this dude? <laughs> this guy was nasty. Yeah, he was, he was something special. His slider you know slider sometimes looked like a split went the wrong way i mean he's his stuff was incredible what a what a pitcher he was if you go back and look through some of his seasons during that time you're talking about during the early and mid 90s and and you know i was with ape both in kansas city and in new york with the mets and man i mean he was something special yeah and he didn't really throw that hard i mean he threw low 90s he wasn't yeah. going 97, 98 with that stuff, but but it, it was just the the awkward uh, delivery and knowing that he had that weird whatever fork ball, so I don't know what the heck that thing was, but whatever it was, it kind of fell off the table, and then he had that he had life to his fastball, but it wasn't you know 95, 96 up in the zone. It wasn't really overpowering stuff wise, but he was an overpowering pitcher. Yeah, I remember the the uh I don't know if it was you and I that chatted about it on Twitter or somebody else might have been involved in the conversation, but maybe Mark Gubiza, because Gooby's always on there on Twitter and we were talking about some of the the shortest bouncing sliders I've ever seen in my life that somebody swung at was Ape versus Juan Gonzalez. <laughs> he would he would you know, Ape would throw like a fifty-two foot slider and Juan Gonzalez would swing before it it almost like like he swung before he even left his hand sometimes because he had that thing was nasty. Yeah, well, Juan Gonzalez went up there thinking swing, man. Yeah, and, but if you if you didn't throw it in the right spot, that sucker was going to be get hit hard somewhere. He's, I mean, he to me, and when people ask me who's the best, um, you know, who's the best RBI guy? I know RBIs aren't important anymore, but the best RBI guy that you ever played with, I said Juan Gonzalez, hands down. He found a way get that runner home from third base he was he was yeah the, yeah the best that I remember too during you know during my career I don't remember seeing anybody that that did it as as well as he did I'm trying to think of the what was the year where I mean wasn't there a year where he drove in like 150 160 and he had 101 at the all-star break yeah Unbelievable. I'm looking it up right now. He had 157. Yeah, that was in 98. So that was right in the prime of, you know, my second year in Kansas City. I remember him. It seemed like at least that, well, he almost did. I mean, almost every single game he drove in at least one run. Yeah. And that, and it wasn't just because they were homers either. I know he hit probably 40 homers, 45 homers or something, but with two strikes, he would stay back and hit a hard ground ball up the middle or the other way to make sure he got that run home. Good Lord, he had a lot, man. I'm looking. <laughs> he had one year where he had 140. One year he had 128. One year he had, you know, 102, 109, 118, 144, 131. Crazy. He, he was a machine, man. When I came out yeah. with the Rangers, the guy, I, mean, I mean, let me tell you a few of the guys that were on the team when I came up with the Rangers. We had Palmero, Dean Palmer, Ruben Sierra, Pudge Rodriguez, Juan Gonzalez, um, Dickie Thon at shortstop. Uh, Kevin Reimer was one of the DHs. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we had like five or six dudes in the middle of the lineup that could do damage. And what year did, Will, was what, what year did Will, Clark, Will Clark come there? Was that like 97 or 98? Yeah, no. Will came in 94. Okay. When Palmero left and went to uh, Baltimore, that's when Will came to Texas. Okay. So we still had a lot of those same guys. Yeah. You know, but it was like, yeah. Uh, you know, I get criticized a lot for being a Judy or, you know, not a power hitter. I was like, you see the dudes that were on my teams? Yeah. My job was to get on first base because yes. they were going to knock me in. And if <laughs> I tried to hit homers, I would have been sitting on that 
wooden bench over there next to the manager because uh, he I, my job was not to hit the ball in the air. Yeah, no, no, you you had plenty of run producers behind you. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I uh, I won't keep you any longer, Brendan. <clears throat> excuse me, Glendon, but uh, I, I do appreciate uh, you taking oh. the time today, man. I know we uh, we see things quite similarly uh, in the baseball world and what's going on because we kind of played in an era where things were a lot different than they are today. I know we have to adapt a little bit to the new stuff apparently, but uh, I don't know that I'll ever get my old school mentality out of the way and, and think it's okay for a college kid to hit a home run and fire his bat like an ax toward the dugout. But uh, apparently I need to adapt or die is what they're telling me on social media. Yeah. Yeah. Adapt or die. You gotta, you gotta uh, go along with everything that, um, that guys have never played above their, uh, JV high school team are telling you to do. You have to listen to them. So that's right. That's stay, in, right. stay in line and, uh, you know, just f- fall into order with everybody else and you'll be fine. That's, that's the way it is, man. But I do appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. Uh, Dave D'Agostino producer for setting everything up and let's stay in touch. Uh, Glendon, I'd like to, uh, you know, know how your kid, how your son's doing in college. I know you said you went to see him last weekend. I'd like to keep up with, uh, you know, the sons of former major league baseball players I'm friends with and, uh, you know, follow those guys and, you know, wish them nothing but success. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You bet. And well, this is Jeff Fry signing off the She Gone podcast. She Gone.